0: Four things to discuss with Arun Pai today. Singapore plans to issue green bonds to raise funds. What do market participants need to understand about these bonds? Which sectors are the winners and the possible losers following the release of Singapore's targeted, very calibrated budget 2021? And Singapore Airlines has a strategy. It's replacing orders for smaller aircraft with bigger planes. says it's allowed it to respond to changes in its projected long-term fleet needs, beyond financial year 2026 and uh, we take a closer look at that rare cold winter in texas and what it's doing to oil prices all that coming up in the show but first let's say welcome to mr arun pai chief strategy officer at flow how are you doing today arun Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing really well. All right, let's start with the green bonds. Arun mentioned in the Singapore budget. So our government has announced the intention to issue green bonds of up to $19 billion to support green projects. And For the listeners, this practice of borrowing to fund infrastructure projects not at all new in Singapore. The Singapore government has borrowed to build the first MRT lines. It took up loans to fund the development of Changi Airport back in the 80s. HDB, LTA, the stat boards, PUB as well have issued bonds periodically this back in the 90s to fund housing and rail and water infrastructures as well. Um no I when I looked at the details I see no fixed time frame for when these bonds will be issued Arun. So what in your opinion do these bonds mean for market participants? I think the most
1: uh, important thing to take away from this is the fact that the Singapore government is placing a lot of attention, uh, which we saw throughout the entire budget, but uh, placing a lot of attention on this aspect of green and ESG. And and coming up with these terminologies of like green bonds Hmm. is just to address more attention of all the various stakeholders, be it uh, the market makers, i.e. the investment banks, be it uh, large institutional investors, Uh, the likes of your BlackRock, Vanguard, et cetera, as well as, for that matter, retail investors, and to provide an avenue for companies or eventually companies to come into this market space trying to issue bonds. Now, you said it absolutely right. Like, infrastructure requires capital. Now, any green project, which which the government is trying to highlight Mm – uh, be it water and waste treatment plants be it solar factories wind farms etc anything that has like a green theme or element to it they can try and come in through these channels wherein hopefully the government can potentially subsidize the kind of cost for this mm. or provide additional incentive now let's look at you know the world's largest bond market the US right the US government bonds mm-hmm. all of that is pegged to the treasury So you need to have the base level of risk, which is the U.S. government itself, have the U.S. Treasury curve erected from, you know, overnight all the way up to 30 years. And only then can you start getting companies to issue 20-year bonds, 30-year bonds. So even like the likes of a Microsoft or Berkshire Hathaway would find it very difficult to issue 30-year bonds had it not been for the U.S. government setting that base interest rate. And I think that's exactly what the Singapore government is looking to do, wherein using their AAA, absolutely pristine credit name, on government-related infrastructure, green infrastructure projects, setting that base curve to then enable, not overnight, obviously, but to enable companies over the next five, ten years, maybe, to start getting involved in this market space a lot more, issuing bonds, with the help of investment banks, wherein there's already a robust market. There's liquidity, there's depth of the market. There are investors, there are sellers, there are traders, etc. And I think that's the grand goal of what
0: the government hopes to achieve out of this. Okay, so the priority will be developing this benchmark curve as you see it. That is correct. Okay. Has reaction to government bonds been tepid because of that AAA credit rating? Therefore, you know, what do we see in terms of returns?
1: Uh, In terms of returns, uh, negligible, but in terms of the amount of capital that's sloshing around Mm. and looking to find a place where, like Singapore is one of the very few AAA rated countries that are out there that can still issue bonds. Uh, I mean, pseudo-sovereign, because Singapore government itself doesn't, but they do it through uh, Temasek. Uh, But it's one of these very few players out there where you can actually earn a non-zero interest rate. And, you know, it's, it's crazy saying this, but $17 trillion worth of bonds are still in negative interest yield, especially in Europe, right? So if you want a pristine credit, you're actually paying money in a way to get access to these investment classes. And you compare that now to, say, Singapore, who's trying to branch out and build out this uh, mini ecosystem with a pristine credit, I think it will actually be quite successful, to be honest. Even though the headline interest rate might be extremely low, it's still more than zero, and that's a lot more that can be said for those $17 trillion worth of uh, bondholders that are out there currently in the marketplace.
0: Has news of this development, you know, market participants looking at these plans by the government to issue these green bonds, has that impacted Singapore dollar rates at all? Uh, I don't think it's going to be an overnight phenomena, mm-hmm. and
1: this is, and you know, don't take me wrong, it's a great initiative, but relative to the size of the bond market and the capital required for infrastructure in general, mm-hmm. it still won't play as large a role to affect the underlying uh, Singapore rate, but maybe give it like, say, 10 years and climate change, it becomes an even bigger problem than what it is right now. And we see the percentage or the size of this, let's call it the green bond uh, space becoming even more, then we can see potential nuances of how a lot more investment into these green bonds is potentially pulling down the rates on the Singapore dollar.
0: All right, so for the listener, if you've just joined us, we're taking a closer look at green bonds as announced in the Singapore budget. Some $19 billion worth of public sector green projects have been identified. For this, this includes Tuas Nexus, Singapore's first integrated water and solid waste treatment facility in Tuas, which is going to be ready from 2025. All right, let's take a closer look at the numbers in the budget. There were a lot for us to crunch. Broadly speaking, who are the winners and the losers, do you think, Arun? from our budget, which looks at tapering support for um, tier two, tier three sectors, so to speak, those sectors that were not uh, receiving the brunt of the fallout of the COVID pandemic. Who are the winners and losers, do you think?
1: I think a couple of industries that I'm looking quite closely at is uh, the startup industry to begin with. And that's relatively broad, but I would say the startup industry within the startup industry or startups I would say uh, agritech, uh, that's going to be potentially a big winner from this, and just like the whole green space itself, right? like anything related to increasing energy efficiency, anything related to uh, maybe even you know trying to digitally transform the more traditional industry industries like the maritime space, I think they will receive a nice boost from this, given that the government overall you know the overarching theme of the budget was the green space trying to assist startups to grow digital transformation i think all of that is still you know kept as is post during the covid and currently so i think from that aspect we will try and see a good uptick in more and more startups coming along over there i think from the aspect of uh the green space sticking to the green space okay. the petrol hike vis-a-vis electric cars, like the whole EV, electric vehicles, electric charging, I think that entire industry is going to have a big boost. And the one thing I really liked about this budget was it's not like they provided crazy amount of subsidies for electric cars and charging stations. I mean, yes, they have to some extent, but it's not like the rest of the world because Singapore is a city state. The fundamental problem here, obviously, while dealing with climate control, is also to ensure that... Uh, congestion doesn't take place. So I think they've done a very, very smart thing. And this is going to hurt the wallets of us us consumers, sadly, in the short run. Mm. But I think it's a very smart thing of trying to increase the cost of running a petrol or diesel car, thanks to this petrol hike, yep. while at the same time, pegging the cost of an electric car to be roughly where a petrol car should have been. So, there are all these Bloomberg articles, you know, the Tesla 3 is the same cost of like a Toyota Camry in Singapore. Yes. That's fantastic, right? Let, let the Toyota Camry start becoming 10, 20, 30% a higher a cost while keeping the Tesla car as is so that congestion is not going to be a con- or not as bad a concern in Singapore as it is in neighboring metropolitan cities in Asia, while at the same time ensuring that climate change is taking place. There are more EV charging stations and all of that stuff. So from that perspective, I think it was a very balanced budget, which will help the green infrastructure, especially in the transportation and charging space, quite extensively. Uh, the last segment that I would like to highlight is the manufacturing side. Mm, which has been and suffering. Then, which has been suffering already. And, you know, the whole pass cutting by 15% yeah. is something that's obviously going to hurt a lot. I think what the government is trying to do, though, is getting the more higher end, more technologically savvy, more potential, like, battery automated manufacturing plants to get set up in Singapore, leading to a more higher elevated level of employees that can join it, which is very, very suitable for uh, the more affluent uh, Singapore uh, employee who's looking for a job, right? This is not going to be your uh, you know, T-shirt manufacturing lines or anything like that. It's going to be highly automated lines, which requires very, uh, you know, a solid understanding of technology, be it hardware, be it software. So wh- while, you know, the Singapore government is trying to bring in the new companies, bring in these high-tech manufacturing setups, which will help the country overall, Ramp up that manufacturing capability, but this is high-tech manufacturing, not the low-tech one, which I think is going to be a big boost for the overall economy for that matter.
0: What do you think of consumption-related stocks? We know a GST is going to kick in sometime between 2022 and 2025. The GST hike, uh, and we know that GST is going to be levied on what was considered low-cost goods up to four hundred dollars that you you know you would buy online from anywhere around the world, right? For online shopping, so is it sort of a mixed bag for consumption-related stocks given um, you know the proposals for the GST and the higher tax rate and what it could mean for consumers? pockets. You know, to be honest,
1: Michelle, I have a little bit of a different take on this.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, my take is
1: the ease with which online retailing has come about and the kind of user experience a shopper or a buyer has right now through these different sites, through these different platforms is going to be a lot more of an uphill battle than you know, the sub $400, an extra 7% or 9% tax. I don't think it's going to be enough. Me, personally speaking, I don't think it's going to be enough of a draw factor for someone to be willing to get out of their house, go to potentially 15 different stores, try and check what's potentially the best uh, option out there. These will be continuing to just be online. I, I think the Aspect of, you know, the GST high trying to level the playing field between your mom-and-pop retail stores vis-a-vis these massive tech conglomerates, I don't think that just the GST is going to be enough. I think the aspect of how, you know, Orchard Road needs to be transformed, there has to be this other aspect of what will draw a shopper or a buyer to my store or to this area and uh, be willing to shell out money, it has to change quite dramatically from what it is right now. And this aspect, I mean, sure, to some extent it might be a little bit more of a leveling factor. I don't think this will change. If mom and pop stores, the retail stores that are out here, are hoping that now suddenly their volumes are going to pick up substantially because of this GST change, I think they might find things to be a little bit more difficult uh, You know, when... Time evolves over the next six months to a year.
0: Yeah, so not necessarily a positive for brick and mortar stores as it's, um, you know, hoped to be able to contribute to these hikes. All right, let's take a closer look at the aviation sector. We woke up this morning to news that is going to get additional wage support. And of course, uh, in the budget, we heard about $870 million in support for the aviation sector, an ongoing job support plan extended as well. Um, and we also heard about Singapore Airlines recently swapping orders for 14 aircraft, Boeing 787-10s for 11 Boeing 777-9 planes and in its announcement last week on delivery deferment SIA said replacing orders for the smaller aircraft with the bigger planes, with a longer range, has allowed it to respond to changes in its projected long term fleet needs beyond financial year 2026. So, with this strategy uh, in context as well of the support, continuing support for the aviation sector from this budget, what do you think this means for SIA's prospects moving forward?
1: Uh, breaking that down into two parts, uh, my perspective on the first part, which is, you know, moving potentially to larger planes. Mm-hmm. I think that's more of just a capital deferment strategy rather than them thinking that larger planes and longer flight times is going to be, uh, you know, the way f- flying is going to take place. I think the 11B7779 uh, is more of a potential replacement for the a 380 that has now gone the way of the dinosaur, right? Like Airbus is going to have stopped A380s already. So in the next like five, 10 years, they're going to be like phasing out these larger planes and these b uh, 777 can form a replacement. So I think from that perspective, I would question the aspect of whether Singapore Airlines is going to purely go down the path of large flights, longer flight durations, especially given COVID, where people might not want to be in an enclosed space for too much period of time. I think it's more of a replacement strategy and CapEx deferment. From the perspective of the airline industry as a whole or specifically SQ, even with the budget, uh, I think Richard Branson said it, said, has said it the best, right? Like uh, a question was asked to him, how do you become a millionaire? Hmm. And he says, become a billionaire, and then launch a new airline. <laughs> so the, 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 the fundamental issue, this is what he's done. He's still a billionaire uh, for all the listeners out there. But I, I think the fundamental problem with the airline industry, it's that it's an extremely capital-intensive, commoditized, but yet commoditized service, where given you know all gratitude to the various governments out there uh, for the large part of things, it is an extremely safe and secure way of traveling. So the aspect of uh, brand loyalty is there to some extent, but you know, uh, let's just say maybe the industry requires an Elon Musk to show up and they can take a page out of that playbook to have that kind of undying loyalty to a specific brand to be willing to shell premium dollar uh, for a commoditized service. So I think from that perspective, uh, I am not an investor in airline stocks at all. And Buffett, again, you know, another famous quote, uh, I just wish someone had shot down uh, the guys, the Edison brothers back at Kitty Hawk when <laughs> the airline was launched because it over the course of history, back from there till inception, it has been a, ca- a cash-destroying industry. So it's very, very difficult. I mean, sure, there will be some traders out there who can potentially time the markets and get in and get out where... You know when times are good versus bad, but overall, from a longer-term capital allocation perspective, I still think even in spite of all the government uh, subsidies, the support, uh, the only th- it, it'll be a difficult industry. The only thing I feel that SQ has going for it is that it has the backing of a government that is a lot more sound with a lot more secure balance sheet than potentially even. Uh, the Middle East countries, right? Because who knows what is going to eventually happen with this whole oil and gas space. So from that regard, if the number of competitors, especially in the Asian region and the Middle Eastern region uh, comes down and there's a lot, lot more like mergers and acquisitions that take place within the industry, maybe that could be a nice uh, tailwind for SQ. Uh, But me personally, I'll take more, a bit more of like a wait and see approach. Uh, and admire the industry from afar, travel, but not invest.
0: All right. What a unique perspective. So I suppose airlines only make sense if you're Amazon. (laughs) Amazon (laughs) looking to uh, have a gross spurt in its aircraft fleet, but then, of course, it needs it. (laughs) Completely different, uh, business, but absolutely dead on on correct.
1: uh, The aspect of Amazon pumping billions of dollars into this to facilitate and to have, full control of A to Z with the logistics uh, supply chain. It's fantastic for the company. They have the capital to do it. Uh, You know, it's a day one company, as uh, Bezos always says, right? So
0: Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense for them. All right, I want to take everybody to the Texas Permian Basin now, where temperatures are unusually frigid. It's currently about minus 6 degrees in Midland, Texas. And this Permian Basin, by the way, is the heart of the U.S. oil industry. And the freezing cold is affecting production. So output down by more than 4 million barrels a day. What is this? Cold snap what is his impact of the cold snap on energy markets, as you see it?
1: Oh, honestly, it's scary. My brother lives in Houston, and mm-hmm. he's been telling me horror stories of what's happening over there. The, the South of the U.S. and you know, I studied in Atlanta. Uh, my brother's in Houston. The South of the U.S. is really not built for such cold temperatures, unlike the Northeast and the Mid North of the country. So when such a crazy cold spurt happens basically the entire industry the roads the uh airports you name it everything is shut all the various like shale oil players the, sh- uh, the shale players over there have shut down shop because there's just no way to transport oil out uh the machinery has basically gotten clogged up so we've seen a massive drop in production of one of the world's largest production centers, which has naturally led oil to uh, spike higher over the past couple of days at least. From the perspective of just speaking of oil in general, you know, this takes me back to one of our first uh, calls that we had at the beginning of this year. Uh, I, I am quite bullish on oil for this calendar year. I personally have this view that vaccines will, the rollout of vaccines will be a lot quicker than expected. I believe that the world will start humming again to the world economy will start humming again to a reasonable extent. At least as compared to last year, it will be a substantial uptick from that. And we'll start seeing, with a more stable US government in place, uh, we'll start at least seeing some kind of more stable geopolitical arguments and discussion. Not to say that the US and China will become best friends overnight or over the next couple of months. I don't think that will happen. But from the perspective of companies at least having a very clear vision of what cross-border transportation and what goods will be required, potentially setting up plants, diversifying their manufacturing segment, I think that aspect of the economy on the back of uh, especially the Federal Reserve, who came out a couple of days ago saying that the accommodative monetary policy will be continued... I feel that there's a lot of aspects a lot of tailwinds to ensuring that the world economy is going to be in a much better place come the end of the year than what it is right now. So from that aspect, I feel that oil companies in general should be able to get off their lows. I think oil tankers. Uh, The transportation segment of oil, product tankers, uh, crude oil tankers, I think after the extremely abysmal rates that we are seeing in the markets recently, I think that will start to appreciate till the end of the year.
0: Taken together with Saudi Arabia's widely expected plan to increase production, then are we seeing possibly the beginnings of a commodity super cycle?
1: I think super cycle is going to be a little bit of a stretch. think words but like super cycle. <laughs> <laughs> and at least when it comes to oil, I think uh, the super cycle might be difficult, especially because governments across the world, especially like Singapore too, are going down the path of trying to identify more uh, you know, like green alternatives. So I think from that perspective, it'll be difficult. Mm -hmm. But this is where, you know, OPEC could be a nice neutralizing factor. If you, they've been cutting production quite substantially over the past six to nine months to kind of balance the oil market. Uh, A natural disaster obviously occurred in uh, Texas. Production has dropped substantially. Mm -hmm. It will be relatively easy for OPEC or OPEC plus to be able to ease the curbs and supply And, you know, start basically ramping up production relatively or very, very quickly, I would say. So from that regard, I don't think we'll ever come under, you know, like a crazy shortage of oil like we saw like 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, Stuff is relatively well in place. Infrastructure is in place. I think just naturally the entire industry has to be very cognizant that, there are a lot of issues in terms of, you know, they have to figure out how to become green. We've seen Mobil results come out recently where the CEO was peppered with a lot of questions about how do you intend to make this company become carbon neutral like what BP and a couple of your other competitors have said they will achieve by 2030 or 2035. And I think that's going to be the space where we have to see these really large oil and gas companies which were, you know, four of the top 10 largest market cap companies in the world, just as recently as like 15, 20 years ago, and now they're nowhere to be seen. They have to start evolving and they have to start getting diversifying their oil exposure uh, into more green initiatives too.
0: So, given that Brent crude is closing on 65 US dollars a barrel, West Texas crude trading close to about 63 US dollars, I believe, both up about six percent over the past week, and also you know uh, signs of optimism in global recovery, which you echoed as well. Do you think this could push crude prices um, even higher, and by how much? Uh,
1: by how much? I will probably 10%? not answer that because I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. But. I, I would just say, again, coming back to the start of the year, I think that was a really good time to get into the oil industry as a whole. Mm. I think given these dislocations right now, given where valuations are, uh, I still believe there is a decent amount of value to be had in this space, especially potentially in like the transportation of oil and more specifically, like the product of oil, that space. I think there's a quite a bit of value still to be had over there.
0: Always fantastic hearing your original insights, Arun. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: My pleasure as always, Michelle. Thank you for having me.
0: He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg